Hi, my name is Alan. I'm a business designer and welcome to the Beyond Users podcast, where we learn about business to become better designers who not only solve user challenges, but also achieve business goals. In the 16th episode, I spoke with Rafaela Ryan, who is a co-founder of the Berlin-based educational startup called Career Foundry. Career Foundry offers online courses such as UX, UI and web development and is actually one of the biggest players in this field in the world uh, and has more than 10,000 students each year. Now, Rafaela is recognized as one of the top 50 women in the tech uh, by Forbes. So congrats for that. And uh, she's also a great guest for this podcast because she's a business person, a business leader who has a big focus on design, but she's coming more from the business perspective. So uh, we spoke about her organizational design experiment that she's running in the Career Foundry, where basically she's trying to change the culture and uh, using different experiments to, to test that. We then spoke how and why every employee at Career Foundry, even the non-designers, have the UX skills in their KPIs, uh, sorry, as their KPIs in the performance review. And we also spoke about the things you can say to your boss uh, to convince her or him to invest more money or more resources into design. Just one more thing before diving into the episode. I've recently created an email course called Measuring Design, where I explain what are design metrics and how you can use them to measure your design work. And not only that, but also how you can present it to non-designers to basically show the value of your work. It's a free five-day email course with a nice framework that I call Design Metric Canvas that you can use on your projects. So to get access to the course, please head to beyondusers.com. And now, without further ado, here is a conversation with Rafaela. Okay, so Rafaela, uh, where does the idea for Career Foundry comes from? In my last job, I worked for one of the biggest German media companies and um, they invested in 2013 heavily into their digitalization. And as part of that, they wanted to hire 150 developers and designers. And um, now, if you have tried to hire developers and designers, good ones on the market, you know how difficult it is to find good people. And, you know, seeing that, I thought, wow, why is nobody doing anything against this incredible skills gap that we have in the market? Because, um, you know, somehow our universities don't, and, you know, the, the schools that we have don't seem to bring the people to the market with the skills that are actually needed. Mm-hmm. And so that that's how the, the idea was born for a school that would teach people very quickly in the most in-demand skills in the world um, Mm -hmm. but without having to go back to school for a full year or three years or anything like that. Cool. So what was the first step you took? Like what was the MVP? Well, the very, very first step was that we looked at tons of job sites and looked what are really the jobs that are most in demand. And -hmm. that's how we came to software development and UX. And then, um, to be honest, we started off very, very scrappy. We uh, There's this website called meetup.com where you can find different meetups. And we put um, out a meetup on a software development bootcamp in Berlin. Mm 
Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was super popular. We had like 400 people that, that, you know, joined in wow. the first day. And, um, then when we held the first, um, boot camp, um, we, there were like, there was obviously a price tag to it. So we had 15 people that signed up to the first one and we didn't have a location. So we did it in my living room back then. So very, <laughs> very, very scrappy. But, um, you know, we, we basically just from, building this meetup which cost us like three euros so nothing mm -hmm. we pretty quickly knew that there's definitely an interest in learning you know a, a skill like that in a very Im Im fast and immersive mm -hmm. way that's a really awesome example of a cheap prototype if not yes. right so instead of creating the whole what you have today which is the product you basically just tested the if demand is there right Yeah, yeah. I think first you always want to figure out demand. And, and then, of course, you know, from there, it still took a long time till we actually figured out the right product. <laughs> you know, that because, I mean, it's one thing to just have an offline or like a course, but to have mm -hmm. a course that really gets people into a job in like three to six months, that, that is hard. So that, that took a while longer. Uh huh. Tell me one thing. So, as far as I understand, Both of you, so it's you and a co-founder. So it's two co-founders who started the career foundry. Indeed. And as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, none of you are um, uh, designers, right? That's so, correct. So, <laughs> you know, it just this nicely leads to a question, which is how do you teach design if you're not a designer? That's a very good question. Um, we obviously have you know what i do on a daily basis is i run the company i take care of finances and investors and all kinds of things i'm not responsible for the curriculum at career foundry and mm -hmm. we have people from the marketplace that um you know that spend time on this curriculum that you know we pay and um you know for example we also work with well-known companies as for example one thing um is the voice user interface design course was created in in collaboration with amazon alexa so we work with both companies that are leaders in their fields but also with you know freelancers or very well-known ux designers who help us create the courses mm. how would you say is your curriculum special what's so special about it why do designers who embark on career foundry journey actually get jobs so it was really built with a certain goal in mind. And the goal was to bring somebody from almost zero experience to job-ready UX designer. So mm -hmm. every step along the way is really synced towards that goal. And um, then we have mentors and tutors that help the students at every step of the, of the journey. And I think that combination is basically unique that you have somebody who helps you, um, a real person who's in the field, who's ahead of you, but you are still able to, you know, be flexible as to when you learn, where you learn. Mm -hmm. That's actually one aspect I really like about Career Foundry. Actually, also my wife took the mm -hmm. course at Career oh, that's Foundry. Great. <laughs> that's good to hear. <laughs> So I, one thing that also got us excited was exactly this personal approach because it's not just, even though it's online, mm -hmm. uh, it's still you have this human touch and a cohort and that's what really makes it a good experience, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so just to kind of paint the picture where the Career Foundry is at today, 
how would you say what wh- how big are you basically how many students you had how many courses you have today we still only have three courses today uh, we have ux then we have ui and we have web development and we want to also re- remain that way so we don't want to be the school for everything we want to be you know the leaders in ux ui globally which we which we are in the top five now but you know long term we want to definitely get into top one level and um and student wise we have between 1000 to 1500 students a month on on around the globe actually what most people don't know because we are based in berlin but most of our students are based in in the usa interesting mm-hmm. how does that work with the mentors and everything so it means you have to have mentors from the us then to have the same time zone or yeah yeah we have mentors all around the world we have mentors in asia and africa everywhere oh, okay. even australia um, but most of our students are in the us which means also most of our mentors are in the us makes sense makes sense mm-hmm. but how do you how do you imagine competing with the likes of udacity who is just huge well udacity doesn't have a very credible ux program um and they they basically went away from ux to fully focus on the software side of things mm-hmm. so there we're actually not competing i think you know we are very focused on getting people into jobs, working with some of the best partner brands around the globe. Like for example, our new, actually, yeah, um, this is, um, hasn't been public knowledge, but I share it anyways. For example, our new web development course was in, uh, you know, created in combination or in collaboration with Slack and with GitLab and cool. um, even Stack Overflow put put in some content. So really, really like basically leaders in their field. And so that's that's how we differentiate us from other competitors. Cool. Awesome. Mm. So when is this going to be public then? Well, in the next two, three months, the new web development course will launch in January. And obviously on the UX course, we have worked with Amazon Alexa and Envision is one of our partners who has helped build the course. So I think this, uh, these are also like very well-known brands in the mm. sort of experience design space. Mm. I think it's fair to say that maybe you're coming just like like I am to design more from the business perspective because mm-hmm. you've been in business. Yeah. And um, that's why we have a lot to talk about. <laughs> Actually, one of the things um, that you're in a position where you're a business leader, you're mm-hmm. making business decisions. And you are making decisions whether you also as a company, beyond the product you're selling, if you as a company going to invest in design, basically mm-hmm. meaning hiring designers, yeah. uh, developing their careers, etc. So one of the things that you're perfect to talk about is actually how do designers who are already in this role, so maybe they're like senior or lead designers and they're fighting with their uh, managers who are mm-hmm. typically non-designers, yes. how do they convince them to, you know, invest more? Um, what are the what are the things that, what are the maybe rationale or um, hmm, how to call it, arguments that you can use to actually convince a leader to invest in design? That's a very good question. I love that question. I think whoever you want to convince you you know think of it as talking to a user right um so think about what does the user want and when you talk to a business leader what does the leader want they want you know the business to grow they want the business to 
be stable, to make profits and so on. So speak to them in their terms. So for example, a, a good, um, a good way to think about why to invest is to say, if we invest in, for example, finding out what the users really want and build three tests, maybe, then we have a higher chance of making more revenue. And uh, maybe the probability is so and so much higher. Or you could say, well, if we, Avoid pitfalls by, you know, doing a, a, a user test first, then we save costs. So basically most business leaders are either driven by cost management or by growth management. And so to really argument, argue with um, how it benefits either the cost or the revenue side. Yeah, because at the end of the day, business is about making it sustainable, which is having a profit. And this is just a function of revenue minus cost, right? In the end, yes. And that's what most leaders, especially when they don't come from, from a design background and the more traditional they are, the more they will think in these brackets. Cause yeah. again, the leaders have their own KPIs that they are judged on and those KPIs will be, will likely be around those metrics. Mm. But you probably see it from the designers in your company also that many feel uncomfortable using these words because I think a lot of designers feel like they're going to be a sellout. You know, because they want to care about the user and that's the reason why they went into design. So as soon as they start talking about business, it feels like uh, it's almost dirty. <laughs> Have you seen anyone in your company go going through this transition and how they've done it? Yeah, I've seen a lot of people. And I think, you know, being a business leader myself, um, I think how we try to explain it to people is that it's good for the user if the business is stable and growing. And so you always have to balance user needs versus business needs. Because say, for example, you focus all of the business resources on one user. Then, of course, this user will have the best experience ever. But then you have used all of the business resources on just one user. And if that doesn't work out, then, then it's not good for the business. So I think you have to balance that and ideally... I think the sweet spot, and that's what the best designers in the world grasp, is how do you develop or how do you design so that both the user and the business benefits? Mm, I, can, exactly. I, give, I, I give you an example. Perfect. For example, in Berlin, there is a very famous online bank called N26. Mm -hmm. And they do nothing else. They, they have n no other functionality than normal banks. You can make a transaction. You can... Um, you know, save money there. You have a card that you can withdraw money with, but the, the user experience is much better. You can do everything through an app, everything online. It's much faster. It's much more delightful than normal banks. And they are growing so fast in Germany. And so there basically, they just said, okay, we'll make the user experience better because that will differentiate us and will provide us higher growth than other banks. So there basically the user focus and the business growth goes hand, hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And so I think a good designer should basically find that sweet spot where what's right for the user also equals business growth. Yeah, I think it also makes sense. Like I say a lot of the times, there is no user without the business side. Yeah. And we obviously have to think about both sides. Yeah. Because think, also thinking about too much about business can just lead to... Uh, very bad things for business itself. So having a balance is super important. Yeah. But one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, it sounds like you guys at Career Foundry are thinking a lot about balancing these two worlds. 
So I'm just wondering maybe if you have one uh, example or a case from your work, how focusing on user perspective actually also helped drive business results. Uh, because a lot, a lot of the stuff from, you know, a lot of these things that we try to self-design internally is also about examples and storytelling. And maybe if we provide another example on top of this yes. N26, we have another tool we can use when we go to our managers. Yes, um, I have a really good one, actually. Um, it's from the early um, Career Foundry days, 2015. And um, as we said already, my co-founder and I weren't um, UX designers. So we brought in a freelancer who were, was really fantastic. And he spent, I think, two or three months doing the proper user research. Um, you know, he just asked users various questions around the product, the package, everything that we did. And what he came back with, the result was people loved the product. People loved what it does, but they didn't like the pricing. And so based on his initial research, we just made a simple change to the pricing. I think we were at, you know, something like 299 and went to like 249 a month from that. And that little change almost improved. Like we almost went from 10 customers a month to 100 customers a month. Simply because Whoa. the payment plan was something that was perceived, you know, it actually really didn't make a huge difference, you know, 50 euros or 100 euros, something like that. But mm -hmm. it was just perceived as something that's easier to shoulder on a monthly basis. And people really loved it and went for it. And um, so I think that's also, so it's, it's one of my favorite examples because I think it also shows, you know, UX isn't just about you know, making things look nice or wireframing. It's really thinking through the whole business model. If the exactly. whole business model and package is what the users want. Awesome. So I want to really dive deeper into this example. Could you maybe share with us what the product was at that time? And then maybe if you know, how did this designer actually test the pricing? How did he figure out that the price shouldn't be $299, but actually $249? Mm-hmm. So the product was pretty much the same as it is today. You know, it was a six-month part-time UX career changer course, essentially. Um, it wasn't as good as it is today because, of course, we worked so hard on the product every mm -hmm. like over the last years. But it was from the idea the same. Um, but it was cheaper back then because, you know, it wasn't as as good and it had less mentoring back then. And um, I think he went through really, he did a lot of things, which is why it took him like three months. I mean, he went through heat maps. He um, had really like one-on-one -on -one interviews with users. He mm -hmm. um, looked at, um, I think he had them look at competing products. He had a couple of Career Foundry staff go through through different competitors and see what's, what they prefer there and there. And how he came to the pricing exactly is actually, I'm not sure how he exactly he did that. But I think probably he had done a mix of A-B testing, but also asking users and, and from there drawn a certain conclusion. Mm -hmm. What I like from your answer is actually, it sounds like a designer was using a combination almost of design methodologies and also just doing plain business research yeah like seeing yeah. competitors and so on and it also marketing makes... marketing um, yeah. methodologies because you know in in our company we sometimes have um 
debates like, you know, is A-B testing and, um, you know, heat mapping, is that marketing or UX? But I think a good UX designer should really know these tools. Yeah, yeah. So how did you go from 249 price point to about 5,000 euros today? Yeah, so 249 was like on a monthly basis, right? That people paid uh -huh. over like, you know, sometimes 12 months. Um, we, so... It was an iteration, you know, as we became better in with the product, as we became more successful, as we added additional mentoring and tutoring, um, we basically weren't able to cover the costs with the price that we had. Because we, you know, the mentors and tutors, we pay them, you know, they do it as, as you know, something that they're committed to, but that they, mm -hmm. you know, that they get paid for. And we have to ensure that our, you know, we can't just take any mentor and tutor. We know these are people with eight plus years experience. They have worked with good companies. They have great portfolios. And so we have to compensate them in a good way that, you know, really makes them want to share and be motivated to share their knowledge with the students. And mm -hmm. um, over time, we realized basically we had to add more to really, because in the end, what people pay us for is to, to get them into a new role at the end of these six months part-time study. Or most mm -hmm. of them want a career change. And that is our duty. And we probably, you know, that we even have a money back guarantee for people that do not find a new job after the course, you know, yeah, so yeah. we really go into the risk with our students. And, um, and so we had to add more mentoring and that's what increased the cost. Just remind me again, when, when did you exactly start? What year was it? We started beginning of 2013 and mm -hmm. then we tested, you know, these, we had several offline courses in Berlin and then started the first iteration of the platform. But we really only launched Career Foundry as a brand in beginning of 2014. Mm -hmm. The reason I'm asking this is it sounds like you started at the right time. The timing was perfect. You know, some people refer to it as the golden age of UX. Mm -hmm. and, and now some people already say, yeah, we are in the face of commodity where mm -hmm. design is being commoditized. And uh, that's why I wanted to ask you, like, how do you see the future of UX? I think you have a really good uh, pulse on what's happening because mm -hmm. I guess you're talking a lot with companies who hire your students. Yes. And uh, so what, what do you see happening? I do agree that we started at the right time. Because I remember back then, you know, UX in Europe had just started. Many people didn't even know what UX was. And I had to explain what it even is. Um, but I disagree that it's the, the golden age is over or that it's commoditized. Because, um, you know, I see it on both sides of the Atlantic, both in the US as well as here. Many companies still don't even have a head of UX. They still don't really know the difference between UX and UI. They mm -hmm. still... Um, you know, have some serious lack of knowledge in, in, in the leadership team and, and when it comes to design. So I think it is definitely something that is becoming more prominent, but it's nowhere near of being commoditized. Mm -hmm. No, it makes sense. I think what I more meant was that the basic skills like wireframing and mm -hmm. stuff, that's becoming more and more commoditized. That's why yeah. designers are expected to do uh, more things and be maybe even more specialized. So I guess where I'm going with this question is, um, what do you see in terms of the specializations in the UX? Is there anything that uh, designers have to start to learn in addition to just basic design skills? 
Yes. So as said, um, I think what is required because, you know, yeah, wireframing is not a, not a skill that you can monetize well anymore over a long period of time. So I think what designers have to learn is to really think the strategic business side and think mm. growth or like, you know, really be specialized almost on finding that sweet spot between business growth and user um, satisfaction. You know, how do mm. you focus on a user um, and make that one of the reasons for business growth? So, you know, I guess that means designers will know much more about marketing, that they will need to learn much more about marketing, about growth, growth hacking, um, mm. then maybe just, you know, kept taking orders from people how to design something. Mm -hmm. You also have some specialization courses uh, on Career Foundry, right? Yes. Like voice design, UI design, yes. and so yes. on. So um, can you maybe just talk a little bit about why you decided to uh, add them and uh, basically what the purpose is? Yes, so um, it was actually something our users wanted. So they've many said like, okay, now I have sort of the basic fundamental UX knowledge, but I would actually like to learn more about UI or about voice or about some other emerging technology. And so that's why we added them. And they are, they are actually part of this UX certified program nowadays. So the program has become longer for those who want to take the full certified mm -hmm. Um And I guess we were excited about voice because I do think, you know, it's, it's an early, we're early in the age of voice, but I, I see that totally becoming the next new frontier, you know, yeah. after mobile. Um, and I think those people, and we see it, you know, we get students that come out of, especially the voice specialization. They're so in demand. It's, it's unbelievable because there are hardly any designers who know how to do a good voice experience on the market and companies like amazon are really trying to to hire like thousands of people a year for just for their voice space and um so i think it's a really really good specialization to go into and um if you get in there now you really you know you'll be an absolute rarity and top expert in in 10 years Yeah, yeah. What, what what industries do you think will be affected the most by voice design? So far, we see, of course, call centers, um, car manufacturers. Um, so a lot of, um, yeah, I think these two industries. Also, like the whole home appliances um, yeah. sector, electronics. So is it fair to say that mostly the big companies are getting excited by the voice design? I mean, because honestly, I don't see a lot of startups working that much on voice design. Or maybe it's just my ignorance. Yeah. No, I think you're right. It's mostly big companies that hire in voice design because I think you need to, you know, because we're early in the market, you know, it's yeah. still a very, very early stage. Voice design isn't as good yet as it will be in 10 years. Um, so it's mostly the bigger companies that invest in it and that have the, the money to afford whole teams to, to work on, on this as part of R&D. Mm, makes sense makes sense so as a business leader you're also in a great position to talk about one discipline a design discipline that isn't so well known which is organizational design right so mm -hmm. when you're leading a company you have to think about the culture mm -hmm. how you motivate people etc mm -hmm. and um, what organizational design is for those who don't know it's basically using 
design methodology to design also internal processes, basically prototyping what you can do, testing, and then seeing what works and what doesn't. So I'd like to talk to you. I've actually read your article about experiments you've run on uh, trying out the flat hierarchy in your mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So <laughs> there was a very popular article. It was called How Flat Hierarchy Almost killed my company <laughs> quite uh, controversial but it really was like this we um in 2016 we were really big fans of this whole idea of flat hierarchies and the underlying philosophy of that is that if if you give people autonomy to to be their own bosses and to be able to choose what they work on, then they will be much more motivated and they will have much more fun and the overall outcome of their work will be much better. That's the philosophy and we totally believed in that because after all, we became founders because we are like that. We need autonomy to do our best kind of work. Um, but so, and then we introduced this across the entire company, but it went really, really bad. It like absolutely <laughs> failed and, um, Everybody at the end of it was just so unhappy and fed up with it because somehow we did not manage to to turn the idea of a flat hierarchy in a really well-functioning organizational form. And we had, you know, after at the end of that also some problems in the company in terms of, you know, we weren't hitting our targets and things like that. And then we stopped the experiment, um, sadly, because we really, you know, believed in the philosophy behind it. But, um, you know, I think not every experiment can work, especially when it comes to cult- to like organizational design. Yeah, definitely. But what would you say are on paper the benefits or flat hierarchy? Well, on paper, as that they say, people are more motivated because you give them the trust, you give them the opportunity to choose what they work on, to, um, you know, be autonomous. And even there's, you know, lots of Harvard research studies conducted that say, you know, motivation and drive comes from autonomy. That's one of the key drivers for motivation. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you think about it, right, if you have, if people have a hobby or anything that they're really passionate about, they 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 like, you know, more motivated to do it. And we wanted to bring that concept into the workplace. Um, But somehow I think it was more that all the responsibility really burdened and overwhelmed the team. And people felt, you know, that, yeah, just completely overwhelmed by it. Mm. And so it had almost the opposite effect. that People felt like very like burdened and not free at all and not, um, you know, not, not happy at all with, with the whole system. Do you have an insight why it went wrong? And what I mean by this question is, I guess somebody who came up with the idea of flat hierarchy actually has an example where it worked, right? Mm. So there are certain situations where it, it works and maybe certain situations where it doesn't work, the flat hierarchy. Yeah. So do you, did you maybe reflect on why it didn't work for you? Yes, I think, uh, we, you know, we did a lot of reflection. I mean, I don't think there is one point or one reason why it works. It's probably, a, you know, several factors. Um, but I think those companies where it works, they're normally maybe a little bit more mature because, you know, we introduced it when we were 
crazy growing when mm -hmm. we went from like a tiny company to like an established company and so much had to so much had to be arranged and so i think it's easier when processes are are there and established and the company is stable and profitable and then also it works best when you have only senior employees like for example most of the companies that i know where it works mm -hmm. there are like agencies with very very senior people in in it um Not like startups where, you know, mm -hmm. you have a lot of young people and, you know, risk takers and people early in their careers. That is much harder. Um, and I think the other reason why it didn't work is, so the theory is with flight hierarchies when it goes well is that people give each other very candid feedback because the employees know much better how good they work, you know, because they're much closer to each other than, for example, a manager is to them. Mm -hmm. And employees would know if somebody partied last night and that's why they're not coming in today or if they're truly sick and, and things like that, right? Like things the manager wouldn't know. And and so there in, in flat hierarchies, the, the theory is that because you give the you give so much trust and and autonomy to the employee, they actually give each other much more candid, candid feedback mm -hmm. because they want to do good work and because they don't, they wouldn't allow bad work to happen or slacking or anything like that. Um, but somehow that, that wasn't true for us at all. Like for us, because it's hard to give candid feedback and people are worried to like, they don't want to hurt each other and be mean to each other. And often candid feedback can be really uncomfortable. And so people didn't like, didn't dare to give, give such feedback to each other. And then it required us as managers to come in and actually give that. So mm -hmm. for, I still can't tell you why we didn't manage to get the candid feedback into the culture, but since we failed at that, almost everything else failed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So after this experiment, you decided to further experiment, right? And <laughs> to change something. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> There is another article. It's something along the lines, how I improved my culture, uh, company's culture by 500% in seven months. First yes. of all, the reason why it immediately grabbed my attention because you quantified culture, which yes. I've never seen before. And it just triggered my more quantitative mind. So mm -hmm. maybe first of all, how, okay, maybe just how did you even measure it and what did you do? Yeah, we're actually quite quantitative company. We try to measure almost everything. And um, we actually did think, or we spent some time thinking, what is a good measure for culture? And then we settled on some straight out NPS, so Net Promoter Score. That means we have an employee survey that we conduct every three months, every quarter. And we ask the team, how likely would you recommend a friend to work for Career Foundry? And, um, you know, and then it works like a normal NPS that you do with your users that, you know, you get a value from between minus 100 to plus 100. Mm -hmm. And from there, you can A, see where you lie, but you can also see if, if you're improving. Makes sense. So what did you do to improve it by 500%? <laughs> um, it was also, of course, not just one thing, but um, so we we have this employee survey and that is actually the absolute base for us to know even where we need to start improving. So we mm -hmm. ask the team um, questions around their productivity, their motivation, things that drag on their motivation and productivity. And then each quarter we can basically, we, we have a look, for example, what are the biggest pain points of the employees and what do we need to fix? And then 
you know, with the next employee survey, we can see if, if the measures we implemented fixed it or not. But of course, it's, it's very similar to any normal user research, right? You, yeah. like you, you do a survey, but then, you know, of course, if you, like, we have a team of 40. So there will always be some contradictions, you know, that on one question, people say this, on the other, they say that, and it just doesn't add up. Mm-hmm. So you still have to go into one-on-one interviews, which, you know, we randomly select team members to ask them what they really mean and what the underlying motivations or concerns are so that we implement the right measures and processes and then from there you know we almost draft um, ideas for processes but then also run them by the employees before we actually implement them because mm-hmm. you know it can always be that we um you know we we we're seeing a problem, but we create the wrong solution, you know, <laughs> same as in yeah. any design process. Mm-hmm. So, so basically it's a very, very user-led pro- process only that here the user is the employee. Um, and then, yeah, and then it's very measurable because after three months we see exactly what, whether it helped and go, what goes up or if, if certain factors go down. Mm. I love this example because it shows uh, how the value of design also, if, if you, if you turn your design lens inwards toward processes Mm. culture you can have a huge impact in there too totally and that's i think you know the several companies now started to rename the hr into employee experience Mm. and they even have ux designers in in their hr team i think it is like it's not a you know wide scale thing but i know that for example zalando did that which is like a really famous company here in berlin Mm -hmm. and i think it's definitely a a good trend. So another thing you, I know you're trying to do is also create the UX KPR that goes across all the employees uh, in the company. Can you mm-hmm. talk a little bit why you decided to implement that and how you're actually carrying it out? Yes. So this year, you know, the vision of Career Foundry um, has sometimes changes or say, let, let's say it gets refined. And so this year we did a little bit more refining work around our vision, what we really, you know, want to become in the next five to 10 years. And what we want to create is really the world's most user-centric education company, mm-hmm. you know, like, because we believe that education actually isn't very user-centric. Many schools teach things that you never use in the workplace. Many universities teach you you know jobs that aren't aren't needed and um that's not very user-centric and we want to completely change that and become super super user user focused user-centric and change how education is done on a global scale now that's a big goal if you think about it you know (laughs) Um, especially if you're in kind of a slow moving industry where you know most other players still operate like they used to 200 years ago and so we thought, okay, how do we do that? And I think in order to do to really become user centric, you have to start with your with yourself, with your own process processes, and with how you, um, you know, how you build your product, how you build your company, how you manage the team. And so you heard like how we manage a team is very very user focused, but um, I think there's never an end to to user focus. You can always become better and improve. You know. Mm-hmm. So we decided, we thought, okay, we want the whole team to really be aligned and be great at user centricity. 
because it's I think one of the really well known examples of is of you know a user centric company is Apple. You know, it's like the the model for any design company, and they say that in Apple even the janitors have design knowledge. And you know, I actually always thought that was a myth until I spoke to one of the early Apple employees, and it's apparently actually true. Even the janitors have a <laughs> design design understanding. Um, and so for us, of course, you know, we didn't necessarily hire people for design understanding. Like we have people that work with us for three, four years now, and that didn't used to be a criteria. And especially in, in some areas like, say, customer service or finances or whatnot, that normally isn't a criteria to hire you hire somebody for. So we thought, okay. Um, if we want to be the world's most user-centric education company, we have to take the entire team along and bring everybody like in their specific functions to a more user-centric behavior and understanding. And how do you do that? You know, how do you do that? And then it became clear you have to make it one of the KPIs of every team members. Because a KPI, which is like essentially a goal for an employee, is is basically you tell them what you expect from them, right? That's, that's nothing else. You, you set expectations and that helps the employee because they know what's expected of them and it helps you because it helps you measure them. And so we didn't, we don't just have user experience in there. We came up with five criteria that we think is are important for Career Foundry in the future. And now every team member gets um, evaluated on these five. And so this is a fairly new development, right? And it doesn't mean that, so it means that first we communicate it. We say, okay, from now on, UX will be one of your um, KPIs and we'll expect everybody to be good at that. And then everybody says like, okay, but what does it even mean? You know, yeah. what does it mean to be extremely good in UX or just average in UX? And then you have to think about, okay, what can we actually expect everybody in the company to do UX wise? And we said, like, for example, we, the classic one is that, for example, people say, oh, I can't be user driven because I don't have the data. So we said in future, that is, for example, something that's not, um, um, excuse, you know, not an excuse anymore. If you don't have the data, you have to get the data, Yeah, you know? Um, or for example, in, in their daily work, say, for example, our sales team, right? Um, our customer service team, their job is, of course, to deal with the customers and to make them happy. But now they also have to like, you know, fill in certain sheets to like, you know, mark common problems, common questions, um, common concerns and so on. So, so to really like build the UX into their daily work. Mm -hmm. I know you have to run, uh, in a few minutes. But I have to ask you another question. So yeah. how do you specifically then measure the KPI? What, what is specifically the KPI? So here the KPI is really like UX. And then within that, we have a couple of examples, what we believe is, you know, what everybody should do. And then, of course, it is um, in the eye of the manager who with their team to, to see like, you know, they also see it between the team, you know, who's specifically good At, at using data, getting data, keeping track of things and really knowing the users and, and understanding how to, you know, how to turn their problems into solutions. Mm -hmm. um, 
And, but, but basically we have certain, we can only give certain parameters and then it's in the, you know, in the eye of the manager to also see who in the team and compare the team between each other. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, Rafaela, for this conversation and a lot of candid answers. Just as a <laughs> last question, um, where can listeners find more about you and also Career Foundry? Yes. So Career Foundry is, of course, you know, you can find us on our homepage. Um, it's www.careerfoundry.com. And we're on all social channels. Um, we're also responding. And me personally, my favorite channel right now is Instagram. And my handle is just at Rafaela Ryan. And um, yeah, I'm posting a lot about our internal processes there and um, how we do things. So would love for you to come join my journey there. Yeah, I'll also link to your profile on the show notes. So all listeners cool. can find it also there. Perfect. Thanks again, Rafaela, for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for the interview. It was fun. Cool. That's it in today's episode. If you do like this show or this episode, I kindly ask you to consider leaving a review or a comment on iTunes or any other podcast app for that matter. Um, this really helps me a lot in getting great guests and also um, it helps other listeners find this show easier on these crowded uh, podcasts apps. And again, if you're interested in how to measure design, to basically show the value of your design work to non-designers and to also know yourself how you're doing, like how you can track the progress of your work, head to beyondusers.com and there you can sign up for a five-day free email course and um, in there you will learn what design metrics are, how you can use them on your projects and um, you'll also get to download a free design metric canvas which is a framework that you can use in your projects to identify all the appropriate and necessary metrics. So for that, head to beyondusers.com. Cool, that's it for today. Thanks for your attention and see you soon.